It's been a while. But thank you for being here, being ready to look at the Word of God. And we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3, specifically um, verses 15 to 17. But I'll probably have to do some review to bring you up to date. Let me just pray. Father, this morning, thank you for bringing us here. We know, Lord, in our life, Christ is, is to be exalted. Um, and, Lord, the Spirit of God is to be obeyed as he applies the Scripture to our heart. And, Lord, every one of us are not where we ought to be spiritually. We all need to grow more. We all have areas that we need to defeat sin and put it to death, and we need to put on righteousness. All of us are there. So I pray, Lord, that for us as a congregation, our desire would always to be progressing forward, not going backward. And I pray as we do that, we would grow in holiness and godliness and that we would honor you in our words and our deeds. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we are in Colossians, um, Colossians really has a warning about false teachers. So a person really shouldn't carelessly follow just anybody, any personable religious leader, merely because they talk about Jesus or maybe they urge audiences to receive the Spirit. Jesus is quite popular among worldly people, but not the true Jesus. The popular Jesus may be the baby Jesus in the manger at Christmas time, or the buddy Jesus of Nashville gospel music, or the success counseling Jesus of positive thinkers. He may also be the romantic Jesus of the Christian crooners, or the rhythmic Jesus of Christian rock, or even the reforming Jesus of the liberals. But none of these are the Jesus preached by the Apostle Paul and the Apostles. Therefore, not the real Jesus who saves men and women from their sins. Jesus, in reality, is the Lord Jesus Christ, the offended creator of the universe who had died for men on the and women on the cross to redeem them and by shedding his blood to wash away their sin. And then he rose from the dead to be set far above principalities and powers and might and dominion. In every name that is named, Jesus is above all. And finally, it is Jesus who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. So the Lord Jesus, as he really is, is not the popular Jesus of shirts and bumper stickers, of politicians and entertainers. He is the despised one, rejected of men. So they crucified the Lord of glory, and they would do the same today. We would do the same today. He is the mighty God, the perfect man, the only Savior, the eternal King, the Lord of Lords, 
and all God-called teachers will preach not an imaginary Jesus who appeals to the flesh, but rather the true Christ of creation and salvation who appeals to the spirit, the redeemed spirit of God. And so if one gets Jesus right, they will get the Christian life right. But if one gets Jesus wrong, one also gets a distorted view of the Christian life. And I have observed many today have a distorted view of the Christian life. So when we come to Colossians, we find that Colossians gives us a picture of the lifestyle that leads to dynamic holiness. It is the picture that we are very familiar with from the scriptures because it talks about the putting off and the putting on of sins and the putting on of righteousness. And every time we do put on clothes, it should remind us that of our sin before a holy God, that your sin has made you unrighteous and unfit for the presence of God. And it should also remind us of the basic message of the gospel, that God sent Jesus to die outside the gate of Jerusalem to take away our sins, to cover us up with his perfect righteousness, and to give us new, clean clothes, to give us new life by his resurrection. So Jesus provided the righteousness we needed and took upon himself all the wrath that we deserved. So there is, this is where the resurrection life, the life that we have now as believers, is observed by others. There must be this putting off before there can be putting on. We are not just putting on clean clothes, but clean a clean new self. And the Bible connects clothing with righteousness. And the believer is clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So by the transformative power of the gospel of the cross of Christ, Jesus is making a new humanity. The community of all kinds of people groups that bear the image of God by putting off the old practices, and putting on the new humanity that bear the image of, that, of the creator. So no one could break down the barriers between all kinds of people, groups in the world, and all the differences they bring in. That's where all the conflict is. When it's the differences in social things, and religious things, and ethnic things, and geographical places people live in, the education that they have, in the, the economic situation that they're in, they're in, are all differences and distinctions. And it would be impossible to conquer these distinctions and unify people into one body. Impossible. But there is one, there is one who does the impossible. And that is Jesus Christ. And right now, all who come to Christ in repentance of their sins and faith in Jesus, as it says in Colossians 3.10, it says, being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. 
So to, to be renewed in knowledge points to a reversal of the effects of the fall through the new creation of God's creative act in Christ Jesus. That all distinctions between different people groups are null and void for those who are in Christ. They mean nothing at all. Of course, the world wants to make them something, so the, the divisions continue on. So since Christ conquered all and removed all these distinctions, all peoples can be unified and participate together in one body achieved by Christ's death and resurrection. And where does it all lead to? Well, Colossians 3.11 says, but Christ is all and in all. That's where it leads. That Christ, in Christ, all are one. All are unified. So let me just bring you up to speed a little bit from where we were and where we're going. That there is certain distinctions of the new self that we see in Scripture. In verse number 12 of chapter 3, here's the calling of the new self. It says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. The first thing is that there's a calling, that God calls you to salvation. And the message we receive about our identity really does shape our lives in very powerful ways. Who we understand ourselves to be matters how we live our lives. Long before Adam sinned, God already decreed and determined salvation for sinners. In eternity past, before there was even a heaven and an earth, the Father chose a people in Christ who would be saved from his, from his wrath. And this selection was not based upon any foreseen faith in those who he chose, nor was it promised by inherent goodness. Instead, according to his infinite love and inscrutable wisdom, God set his affection upon his elect. Each one chosen was predestined by the Father to be conformed to the image of his Son and then to sing forth his praises, not only now, but forever. So your new identity shows you are in the kingdom of God or you are not in the kingdom of God. It shows that you are a kingdom kid or you are not a kingdom kid. And last time we stepped into God's clothes closet, and we started selecting clothing that Jesus wants us to wear, that reflects a kingdom kid living in this world. And we see a comparison. There's two ways of life that are compared. The first one, in verse number 5 through 7, is, is gives a list of five vices that we are to put to death. And what are those vices? Well, in verse number 5, it says there, immorality impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry, that all these vices are manifestations of the worship of idols and the loss of contentment in Christ, the worship of gold and not God, and where people are greedy in their hearts, they lose sight of God, 
with a mad desire to get things. Covetousness is a sin of always wanting more, never being satisfied by your circumstances or by what God has given you or by, in that fact, anything. This is idolatry. And covetousness really puts things in the place of God. So if someone would think at all whatsoever that God could overlook habitual patterns of sexual, covetous, idolatrous sin, they would be actually believing a lie. And just because our culture has subtly normalized sin and we live really in the middle of a highly charged, sexually intoxicated culture, that is no excuse to have the influence of the world affect how we live. Instead, we are to put those things to death. And as Christians, you are now in a new position. You can stop the reign of sin in your life and live a holy life. See, Christians have to consider that. They have to get that. And you don't get it right away, but you get it as you're in Scripture, you're learning the Word of God. And there is a motive behind wanting to learn those things. In verse number 6, it says... Because of these things, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. That the motive for holy living is the wrath of God. God is angry against sin. That's why the father had to send the son to die in the place. Because his anger had to be poured out on someone. And Jesus was the only one qualified, willing, and able to receive that anger. And then take care of it. And satisfy the justice of the Father. So this, there's also a humility that comes when we understand holy living because such conduct doesn't belong to our past. If you notice in verse number 7, it says, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. So we all, all were there, weren't we? We were all living in sin, in some kind of sin. We were all habitually doing something that dishonored God and committing idolatry every day of our life, doing what we wanted, what we thought was right. Isn't that the American way anyway? And maybe there's no better way to stay humble when dealing with our own sin and the sins of others than to know where that we are enslaved and engaged in a sinful, habitual lifestyle until we have made, are made alive and repent of our sins and trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. See, we used to walk in them. We used to live in those sins. But these, these are all in your past. And don't go back to those sins anymore. And as far as Colossians is concerned, the false teachers, which he's exposing here, spiritually, they taught that any kind of spiritual fullness has to be found beyond the world of things and persons. And so they concluded and reasoned that since our bodies are part of the evil universe, it doesn't matter what you do. They can indulge every fleshly desire for whatever is done from their perspective cannot be contaminate the spiritual part within. They taught 
that spiritual reality is found through special knowledge and subjective experience and ritual religious observations totally divorced from daily life or even from reality. So if we are to fix our eyes on Christ, which it says right here in our text, verse 2 of chapter 3, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. If we're to do that, then the demand that we should have is not for perfection. Right now, we should be focused and be satisfied with the progress of our spiritual maturity. That's where we look. How are we progressing in Christ? Are we progressing in Christ? How we've grown more this year than last year. So what, what should we expect fullness in Christ to be, to be like? Should it be some supernatural or some ascetic religious experience? What are the marks of holiness? We really shouldn't expect spiritual fullness to be marked by the spectacular, even though God does the spectacular. But that doesn't mark most of our Christian life. It should be marked by the common goodness expressed in the mundane, everyday life. See, God wants us to live right there. He wants us to live right there. Godliness in human flesh lives a Jesus kind of life. Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. He didn't really have an address. He was almost like a nomad, moving from place to place, teaching, living on, sleeping on the ground, lived a very humble, low life. That's what he lived, and yet God, he did exactly what God wanted him to do. So where is it to be found? Where is fullness, spiritual fullness to be found? It's to be found in our devotion and growing love to Jesus and in our loving relationships with other people. In other words, holy living. The fullness of living our relationship with Christ is to be sought in the context in the context of living out life in this world every day. Such as putting off sinful patterns. In verse number 8, if you notice, he gives us a general list of those sins. Put off anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech. Put them all off. Take off those dirty clothes. That's part of this existence that God's called us to. And then he says in verse number 9, then, put, then dis discontinue this one. Do not lie to one another since, since you laid aside the old self and its, easy its, its evil practices. So lying includes untruth, part truth, conveying wrong impressions, exaggeration, and so on and so forth, which distorts the facts. God says, listen, if we do that with each other, we will never be able to establish trust with each other or Neither will we be able to accomplish anything if we lie to each other. 
But we've all lied. We're all guilty. But it should never be our default. We have to put it to death. Death to the old way of life should be a reality in everyday practice. In fact, it means to wipe out, to, to utterly slay, not simply to suppress it or to control evil acts and desires, but to put them to death. In our passage, the decisive act is to strike dead the bodily members so that being dead, they shall become incapable of being used for any of the vices listed in the passage. So clothes are the first things people see. What do they see when they see your life? Do they see these old things? Or scripture gives us also a comparison for the second things to put on. We take something off, we put something on. But notice the second list from verse 12 to verse number 13. Here's the designation of the new self the character of the new self, five virtues to put on. So putting to death sin, putting off the dirty garments of unrighteousness means uh, we as Christians cannot stay neutral but must put on clean clothes. To put on the virtues that exemplify the character qualities of the Lord Jesus himself and of those who are God's beloved elect. And what are they? Put on, verse number 12, a heart of compassion. That's to be like Jesus. Put on kindness. That's to be like Jesus. Put on humility. That's to be like Jesus. Put on gentleness. That's to be like Jesus. Put on patience. That's to be like Jesus. And then two ways to carry out those five virtues. Verse number 13, where do you do it? Where do you carry them out? Bearing with one another, right amongst each other. That's how we carry, where we carry them out. See, that's where we have to see the progress. And then notice in verse 13, not only do we bear with one another, that means bearing long with and putting up with a great deal of injustices and even unpleasant circumstances without retaliation or revenge. That's how Jesus dealt with us. And so... The second thing he says there, and forgiving each other, in verse number 13, he says, and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So has the Lord forgiven you? Has the Lord dealt long with you and been long-suffering and patient with you? Yes, so, see, we have, we have really no wiggle room that when it comes to other people that we can dig in against them if we're going to be like Christ. If we want to go back to the old flesh, that's what we'll do. We'll say, no, I have my rights. You know what? For a Christian, you have no rights. The only right I have is to live like Jesus, right? That's the only right I have, and that's the only right that will give me fullness of life. And that's what I want. I want fullness of life. I want to enjoy what God has given me, not keeping digging in against him. And of course, there's a third distinction he mentions in verse number 14. What holds it all together? Look what it says in verse 14. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect 
bond of unity. Some have referred to love, as I mentioned already, as relational glue. It's, the, it's like the outer garment that goes over all the other clothing, and it holds it all together. That's what love is, all right? And loving others is to be like Jesus. So then, the new self is the born-again self. It is the new creature in Christ, and only the Christian has the capacity to consider themselves dead to sin and alive to God with the ability and the will to serve and please God. We never had that ability before. Now we have it by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God. That loving God's Word and loving God's Son includes hating sin with the desire to pursue righteousness. There's never this vacuum that's nothing, there's no, nothing in that space. There's always something in that space. Always something in that space. That means that salvation is not a matter of improvement or perfection of what had, had previously existed. It is a matter of comprehensive transformation or progress in Christ's likeness. That's where we all need to look. Are we making progress? So when you put on the new clothes, you don't want to take, well, when you put on the new clothes, you really don't want to take them off because they will only begin to stink if you do not keep them on. You'll begin to experience the fullness of the Christian life when you keep these clean clothes on you. And when you put on these new clothes, you won't want to take them off. And what, do you, what does that mean? What will it make it look, you look like? Well, you'll look like Christ. You'll act like Christ. That the Christian first undresses himself of the old clothing. He disposes the stench-riddled, sin-contaminated clothing in order to dress himself suitably. The Christian is now ready for his journey through this life. So here in this passage, there's really a threefold need to prod along successfully, to even gauge your prog progress. This section of really Colossians refers to living together with God's people within the gathered community of Christ's church. And two words are used, again, that are imperatives and these means that they're, they're just not things to consider lightly. They're actually, we are to give, in, we are to give them serious thought and, and practice that these commands now apply more specifically to the inner disposition of the believer, the inner disposition uh, to be a regular and to have a regular pattern uh, of putting off the old and putting on the new in our daily life. And this inner disposition is to be regular. It's to be actually habitual. It is to outflow. It's the outflow of one's calling that leads to putting off, putting on demands of the gospel that leads to peace, which brings, uh, that Christ brings and gives to us. So now this morning, let's look at verse number 15. Because now we look at the central priorities of the new self. And there are, 
at least for this morning, three of them. Central priorities of the new self. In verse number 15, it says this, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So what is the central priority? The first one is, let the peace of God rule. The phrase, in your hearts, shows the hiddenness of, the, of Christian growth and maturity. Not everybody sees what's going on in your heart. But God sees, and you often know what's going on in your heart. So here, this ruling, Christ's ruling, is going on inside of you. And this growth is seen in the peace-loving temper, which governs our words and our actions. Someone said it like this, it's the calm mind, which is not ruffled by adversity or clouded by sin or a remorseful conscience or a disturb, disturbed by any fear. It's a peace that rules in the heart. And the term, the very Greek word for this term rule means to judge or to be in a position to decide, to decide something or to control. That Christ's peace must be the final decision. It is the umpire over our wills, over our passions, and over our, our emotions. And only a real born-again Christian can have this peace. Now, how is that? That Christians are at peace with God? Well, if you notice in our passage, in, in, if you go to chapter 1, verse number 2, it says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are Colossae, grace to you and peace from God the Father. And then in Colossians chapter 1, verse number 19 and 20, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So when we are at peace with God, the Christians have something. What do they have? They have peace of conscience. There's, there's nothing to condemn you anymore because there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. It also means that you're free from the bondage of your own sin and you can now serve Christ without guilt and get up every day and say, Lord, I'm your servant. Take care of me today as I go out into this hostile world. I'm going out in your name. Make me an instrument in your hand. Give me victory over my remaining sin, over my enemies, and the allurement and temptations that are going to be presented to me in the world almost every day without fail. I have peace of conscience, though. I know who I am. I know what God wants me to do. I know what dirty clothes look like and how they smell, and I am now starting to know what new clean clothes look like, and I'm starting to do that every day. And then what else do I have? I have access to God. There is nothing to prevent from enjoying God's presence. There is, there is freedom to go into the Lord with holy boldness in prayer. 
and to speak to the Lord as a member of his family, to have regular and deep fellowship with the Lord Jesus. I have access to God. Also, I have no fear of hell. There is nothing, not one thing that can send you there if you know Christ. Because Christ have, has been punished in your place and therefore justice, his justice cannot touch you again because the justice has already been satisfied. And then what do I have? I have expectation of heaven. That's what I do. I have an expectation of heaven. Look at chapter 3, verse number 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. See, I'm looking forward to heaven. Sudden death means sudden glory. There's also peace in providence. Every day there's a potential to have my peace robbed from me. And I want to take care of that too. And then, of course, it leads to peace with people. Like Romans says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So how does this peace ruling in your heart work? Here's an example Suppose a person has been unjustly insulted. Two thoughts may be presented to his mind. The one urging him to retaliation and vengeance. And the other to patience and restraint. These wrestle with one another in his mind. So if the peace of Christ stands as an umpire over your emotions and your will and your passions, you'll receive a prize. And the prize will be you'll lean towards patience and restraint. See, the, 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 the peace of Christ prevails. So you see, this peace is not simply to be present, but it is to be exercised. It's to have supreme control within us. This is all happening in our heart. Right? We could fake it on the outside, but in the heart, you can't. Each individual believer is responsible to make certain that Christ reign, Christ reigns in the heart and from his heart in his relationship with others. See, this is how you begin to gauge your progress. This is what the child of God looks like when they are putting into practice the word of God and walking in the spirit. As it says in Matthew, blessed are the peacemakers. How will they look? They will be called sons of God. Don't you want to be called the son of God? But this also brings us to another place in in, in our verse, in chapter 3, verse 15, it says, notice this. It says, to which indeed you were called in one body. It helps you keep the unity that God has given to us. The oneness of the body is the sphere in which the peace of Christ is to be carried out and actually realized. You see, when God summons us and transforms us 
from the realm of sin and death to the realm of righteousness and life, he calls us and chooses us not simply to be his people. That's part of it, of sure. But to live a certain kind of life, a different kind of life. We have been called together as one unit, and the peace of God gives us or aids us to help us keep that unified body. All we have to do is step into the flesh, and we already are causing divisions, right? Like it says in Philippians, these two women are, are not getting together. There's division among you. There's strife among you. Take care of that. That's what Paul tells the Philippians, right? Take care of that little bit of strife there. Because that little bit of stripe ends up being a big ordeal. And then notice the next thing he says in verse number 15, and be thankful. Now, brethren, I don't know about you, but believers who are full of gratitude to God for his gracious calling of them will find it much easier to extend to fellow believers and other people the grace of love and the forgiveness that God gives to us and to put aside petty issues that might inhabit the expression or destroy the expression of peace in a community. It's easy to do when you understand who you are, what God's done for you. So, so, so I don't go back to that old way. No, this is, this is what pleases God, but that's what brings fullness, spiritual fullness to my life. That's, that's what, what maintains the peace in my heart, that maintains the unity in the body when I'm like that. And, you know, in this short, uh, short section of Scripture, three times he mentions thankfulness. Here in verse 15, then notice in verse number 16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then in verse number 17, whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So it's all about Jesus Christ. All of it's about Jesus Christ. The Lord loves to see people who serve in his church to maintain a cheerful and a thankful heart. Both are the will of God. You know, old preacher and pastor C.H. Spurgeon uh, in the 1800s said, when joy and prayer are married, their firstborn child is gratitude. It seems very... You know what, when I see this, this is a command, this is an imperative. It seems, when I read it, it seems an easy command to follow. It does. Be thankful. And I'm sure if I were to personally ask you, are you thankful? You would re reply, of course, Pastor. If I rephrased the question and asked you, have you honestly given thanks to God in everything? Well, now, now you're meddling. Now you're stepping on toes. So have you given heartfelt thanks, in other words, to your poor health or your unrewarding job or lack of work? 
for less than an ideal marriage or ongoing family struggle, for an unstable financial situation, for not having your prayers answered just quite the way you would like, for unfulfilled dreams and unreached goals, for broken and difficult relationships, for lost opportunities. Brethren, I do not need to remind you to give thanks when all is well. I have to remind myself I need to give thanks when all is not well. Because you know what? That's where I grow in spiritual maturity. When I know that what's going on in my life, God knows all about it. It's no mistake. No mistake at all. Anyone can say and give thanks when they have good health and abundant food and, and a secure and rewarding job. It's easy then. So we may, may need to conclude that there is much more ingratitude in our life than genuine gratitude. But the, the scriptures are teaching us that should not be normal. It should not be normal or the default conduct of the genuine believer who is growing in their knowledge and understanding of the word of God. See, we must be thankful. It is a command to do it. And when I obey, when I love Jesus, I do what he says, and he says to me, be thankful. So let the peace of God rule in your heart is the first priority of the new self. The second one in verse number 16 is this. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. You notice how it's using the within here? So this is going on inside a person. So let the word of Christ dwell. The better rendering of this phrase, let the, the word of Christ richly dwell within you, is let the message that proclaims Christ dwell in you. In fact, Paul uses it in a different way in chapter 1, verse number 5, where he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard the word of truth, the gospel. See, the word of truth, the word, the gospel, or the message that proclaims Christ, it's always the centrality of Christ in Colossians. In other words, Put the message about Christ at the center of your corporate worship experience and let this message about Christ take up permanent resonance in you and among you. So the message has a transforming power in the life of the community. So how, how does the message have a transforming power in the life of the community? Well, notice in verse number 16, it says there's two things. It tells us there, as you teach, as you teach. Well, you know what? Well, what is teaching? Teaching is really the, the positive presentation of Christian truth. Teaching plants the truth in the mind so it gets hold of the conscience and it transforms the will. So you go from understanding or listening to something to actually doing something. Now, that, that shift doesn't happen right away. That takes a constant word of God being taught to you. 
personal opinions must bow to Christ's word. Personal feelings must yield to what Christ says. And personal individual ideas must be adjusted by God's word. So that's one way this transforming power comes from us. The second way is really kind of like goes along with teaching, but it's the word in our text, as you teach and admonish one another. Now, what is admonishing as compared to teaching? Admonishing really digs error out. It gives warning about the dangers of straying away from the truth. It's the word neuthetic, neuthetic counseling. Instruction put into the mind regarding belief and behavior. So there is belief, but how is belief affecting my behavior? And many times when anybody counsels, Pastor Dave counsels, what he's doing actually is really showing where error has gotten in there. A misunderstanding about how you live the Christian life has gotten in there, takes the word of God, and what does he do? He reminds you of what belief is and what your behavior ought to be as far as that belief. And then when you put it into practice, he can't make you do that. When you put it into practice, you know what happens? Spiritual transformation. Spiritual fulfillment happens. But until you don't put it into practice, you don't get there. So the you want it to get down. In our gathered worship, we must be teaching and admonishing one another so the word of Christ has central place in our worship and is made to dwell richly in our hearts. That the central core of our being, our intellect, our emotion, our volition, is being repeatedly drenched with the word of Christ until it takes residence in your heart until it lavishly fills every nook and cranny and corner of your being and controls your thinking and your actions. And it says there in our text, and how do we, how do, we do this with all wisdom? Well, what's wisdom? It's the ability to use knowledge in the right way, the, the wise way. For what reason? So you can do the right thing, and then you could help other people do the right thing. Because if you notice in our text, we're to teach and admonish one another. So sometimes we have to come alongside each other and say, you know what? You say you believe this, but you're not doing it. This is what you need to do. Now, if they, if they have their receptive spirit, and if they have the peace of God, and they're really a believer, and they want to keep the unity, you know what they're going to say? Let's talk about that. Because I want to correct my behavior. That's what a believer does. But you know how he does it? From our passage of scripture, it looks like he does it also through music. Music. Music is a great means of teaching. However, it must be real music. And not just a sensual beat with a psychedelic sound. Spiritual songs are based on biblical doctrine and consist of words and sounds that represent and honor the Lord. What did Jesus say? You know what Jesus said to those disciples 
walking on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. This is what he said to them. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So what happens is that if you look at Colossians chapter 3, verse number 16, it says, let the word of Christ dwell Richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing another, one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, let me just say that being word-filled and being spirit-filled is something vi- quite very practical. It first comes when someone has realized what God has done for them in Christ, and with this understanding, they feel They no longer belong to themselves. They have a new purpose in this world to show the world that the Lord Jesus has delivered them from sin and that they have made, they have been made holy and God is preparing them for heaven. So being word-filled and being spirit-filled is related not to the realm of the euphoric experience, but to the ethical rigors of the Christian life, the putting on, the putting off putting off, the putting on, that both Ephesians and Colossians, the believers have already received the Holy Spirit, and the New Testament knows nothing of a believer who has not received the Word and the Holy Spirit, been baptized in the Spirit, and been filled with the Spirit. As our life becomes more like Christ, we find ourselves constantly repeating and rejoicing over the truths of Scripture. That's what we do. We go over them, over them all the time. And songs help us to do that. We end up singing and even whistling songs. We capture biblical concepts and teachings and principles in the songs. And that means the object and focus of a word-filled person is the Lord, not themselves not others, not their problems. They are occupied with spiritual things and meditating upon the enjoyment of them. They have joy inside that is expressed outwardly in the fellowship to their family and to their brethren. And when the focus of the believer's heart is the Lord Jesus Christ, then Christian joy is present. In spiritual fellowship, we address one another, not with worldly chatter, but as it says in Scripture, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Well, let's just take our Bibles for a moment and just look at a few passages that mention actually the word psalms, the word hymns, and, of course, the word sing or uh, things pertaining to the Holy Spirit. Just to give you a sense that when somebody is singing this, what does come out of it? What is in, what's the context of what they say? Look at Psalm 95. Just a few verses there, uh, verse number 1 through 6. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want you to notice in Psalm 95, verse number 1, this is a psalm spoken of really about the nature and the work of God the Father and, of course, other psalms, God the Son. It says in verse number 1, O come. Let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout 
joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with what? With psalms, right? But notice in verse number three, for the Lord is great, a great God and a great king above all gods in whose hand are the depths of the earth and the peaks of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for it is it was he who made it and his hands formed the, the, the dry ground. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. You see that a person is filled with the character of God. And what did they do? They sang these songs on the way to Jerusalem, usually on the high holy days, and they would sing them over and over again. Repetition is so important in the Christian life, especially when it comes to theology about who God is. So we sing psalms about who God is. And then another one, you don't have to turn there, but in Acts chapter 16, in verse 25 to 31, remember Paul and Silas are in jail, and what are they doing? The Bible says in verse number uh, 25, and about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to the praise of God. They're singing, they're in jail, they're in stocks, they're in, and jails were not nothing like they have today. They weren't getting three squares a day, and they didn't have climate control. They were in stocks, it was damp, it was a dungeon, what it was. And they're there, what are, they're singing. Why are they singing? They're singing about the so great of salvation, it doesn't give us all the context of what they're saying. But if you notice in verse 31, they said, the, the jailers are listening to them, and they're saying, these guys are singing, and they're in this position in their life. This is crazy. This is nuts. But what they have, I want. And what does it say? It says, Paul said, don't do harm to yourselves, for all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear, and fell down before Paul and Silas, and after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they says, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved in your household. You'll, you'll be saved. So obviously, they were singing about salvation. They were singing about salvation in Christ Jesus. That's what they were singing about, and these soldiers wanted it. Now, I don't know about you, that's about the worst situation you could be in to be singing uh, hymns and yet look at the outcome is the results God wants to bring but spiritual fullness to Paul and Silas and of course other places in scripture spiritual songs usually directed at the Holy Spirit of God and pertaining to the spirit like in Revelation where it says and they sang a new song and what did they sing worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain and purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nations. You see how they understood the gospel. They understood what Jesus did. They understood the purchase that God had to make for that person to be saved. See, that just brings to us joy. And then in Revelation 15, they sang the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. These are like two bookends. And what did they sing? This is what they sang. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord. The mighty, the righteous, and true are your ways. King of the nations, 
Who will not fear, O Lord, the glory of your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. See, they're writing and singing about what God has done, who God is, what God has accomplished. So the word-filled believer joyfully exhorts and admonishes their brethren to worship their Lord and practice Christ, a Christ-conscious life. And all the music comes out of a transformed heart when a person is at peace with God and the heart indicates not so much the place but the manner, the attitude in which they are to sing. So teaching Christological doctrine naturally leads to doxological response. Everything's focused on Christ. He is the center of all theology. And if anyone diminishes or minimizes who Christ is and what he has done, they are in jeopardy of being a heretic. And that is what the false teachers were doing. They were minimizing who Christ was. And then... How is all this thing to take place? Notice in verse, back to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, singing to God. That's who you sing to. And then what? You sing with gratitude in your hearts. So where does this inner singing and gratitude show up? If we have been living, filled with the message that proclaims Christ, it will show up in conduct of everyday living. Or... It will expose you that you have not been singing to the Lord or been truly thankful in your heart. That's what it'll show. For example, if somebody's always worried, worried is a killjoy. It kills a genuine attitude of thankfulness. Worry really, really reflects doubt upon God and makes really us miserable. It makes us grumbling and complaining. As we mumble under our breath, I don't think, God, you know what I'm really going through. Or maybe, God, you made a mistake in regard to my situation. But a defeated and unhappy Christian is no example of the message that proclaims Christ. Who would want that? I'm trying to get delivered from that. Brethren, if you are in that condition today... Bring it all to the Lord. Cast your care on him. Trust in him. He will give you the peace of God that guards your heart and mind so you don't get caught in that vicious cycle of worry like a broken a tape going, ah, ah, ah. So scripture concludes these exhortations with a touchstone of Christian conduct and makes the test of what, right, what is right and what is wrong, very clear to the child of God. We, we, this is not something that you can't figure out. This is something that we know very clearly. So we're to live so that the name of Christ prevails. So what do we do? Let the name of Christ prevail. Look at verse number 17, and I'm coming to a close here. Look at verse 17. It says, whatever you do, Whatever you do in word and deed, or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So do all in the name of the Lord Jesus means that we act with his approval. 
and we show him to others in everything, including what we say and what we do. And this shows up. This really shows what it means to to bear the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, the name of the Lord stands for his person and his character and his will. So we Christians should act in concert with the nature and the character of the Lord. This is the third time it tells us to give thanks. And notice we give thanks through him, through Christ. However, we, we really can't be honestly thankful if we don't honor him by our words and our deeds. One, one best way to test action is really, can I ask the question, can I do it calling on the name of the Lord? Can I do this thing I'm going to do calling on the name of the Lord? Or does it disrupt peace? Or does it violate the word of God? Or does it bring dishonor to his name? And then another test, as far as the, a word is concerned, can I speak it and in the same breath, name the, the name of Jesus. Can I speak this thing to this person and at the same breath, name the name of Jesus? So remember, if we are to fix our eyes on Christ, it is not the perfection of your life, but it should, that we really should de demand upon, it will thou come when we appear with Jesus in glory. Right now, we should Focus and be satisfied with the progress of our spiritual maturity. Again, are you progressing in these things? Are you satisfied? Are you satisfied? So I say, may the Spirit of the Lord bring conviction so he, the Holy Spirit, and you can make adjustments in your life so that you will make progress. And in making progress you will experience spiritual fulfillment. So that's where it comes. In fact, when I bring, pick this up, this passage up next time, notice where it, it, it actually shows up in verse number 18. Wives, 19. Husbands, 20. Children, 21. Fathers, 22. Slaves. Bosses, employees, that's where it shows up. So that's where the Lord wants us to live, right there. And all of us live there. Nobody, none of us can get out of there. But what's the point in Colossians in chapter 1, verse 28? This is what Paul says. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that, here is the the conclusion, the result, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That's the goal of the Holy Spirit of God, to present us complete in Christ. How far are you from that goal? I pray that you see progress, and I pray that that progress would be enjoyed by you as God is working in your life and it gives evidence to your own salvation and makes you a Christian that could actually be used in the body. Amen?